Welcome to Every Day at My House. I'm here in the garden room of my home in Huntsville with one of my great friends, Alexandra. Alexandra is a poet, artist, and student of art history. She was raised in Monterey, Mexico by Russian parents and has grown up with an academic father and an opera-loving mother. She is a romantic in the truest sense of the world and one of my closest friends. Hello, Alexandra. Hello. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for inviting me. We are honestly having a wonderful evening so far. You've been here most of the afternoon. Indeed. I'm just wrapping everything up with some carrot juice and <laughs> conversation. That's right, friends. Our beverage of the night is carrot juice. Um, Alexandra, would you like to explain why this weird beverage is the one of choice tonight? I mean, first of all, it's really good and it's really healthy for you. Extremely underrated. It, yes, absolutely. Yes. You know, when people ask you, what's your favorite juice? You wouldn't think that the person will answer carrot juice. No, most of the time someone will say something boring like apple or orange. Orange, yeah. <laughs> um, but carrot juice, vitamin A. Mm. Mm-hmm. Vital. <laughs> no, I mean, fresh carrot juice is the best. And like making it with like a green apple or with orange, it's so good. Mm. Like if I could drink that every morning, I would. I found out that actually we have a juicer in the vicinity. And by that, I mean, Hugh has one. And so we're going to, we're going to bring it here and we're going to start juicing our own <laughs> maybe <I laughs> very should, soon. Maybe I should start coming to your house every morning, at like 7 a.m. Of course. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we're mostly always up. Oh, I love it. Well, Alexandra and I share an odd love of carrot juice, um, but we also share a love of art history, which is why I really wanted to bring Alexandra on tonight. Alexandra, would you tell me a little bit about your history, um, your experience growing up, and um, why you are studying art history now? Yeah, so I um, I grew up most of my life in Mexico, and my my parents immigrated from Russia like a few years before I was born, um, and they, you know they've always been into history and arts and culture. I mean, in Russia, they really prioritize that in their education. Mm -hmm. And even though my dad is a math professor, he really wanted me to also appreciate arts and culture and just language. And overall in my life, I've been incredibly privileged to be able to travel the world and learn um, other people's cultures, languages, foods, and that definitely undeniably is the reason why I'm studying art history mm. is because for me, like art is the way we tell other people's stories. Mm. Um, and it's always been like that, you know, mm. whether it is the fine arts like painting or it's music or any way it is, it's storytelling. Yes. And when you travel, in a way, you are storytelling. It's a part of your life, mm. in your own book and in other people's books. And so that's that's definitely what inspired me to go into art history, which is probably the most spontaneous and unusual thing for me to have done because I went in as an engineering major. 
Oh, really? I didn't yeah. actually know that. Um, which I only lasted for a semester. <laughs> but, you know, when I was in high school, trying to search for what careers I wanted to do, creative writing was like my number one. Mm. Um, art history wasn't even an option because it's such a small field. People yeah. never say like, oh, I'm going to go study art history. Mm. But then when I went to college, I took a Renaissance to modern like art history survey class. Oh, yes. And I fell in love. It like all fell right in every sense of the way. It was exactly what I wanted to study in my life because, and when people ask, you know, why art history, it's because how interdisciplinary it is. Mm. Because not only do I get to know about art and experience other people's stories through art, but I get to include subjects that I'm also really passionate about, like literature and philosophy and social studies mm. when writing research papers. And that's the most amazing thing about art history, how mm. I get to combine so many things into one. Uh, and look at beautiful things all day long. Indeed. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, if you think about history, it's this litany of facts and stories from different perspectives. But the incredible thing about art is that we have a an image or an icon that we get to return to that is more or less completely unchanged. And like you were saying, the, the social commentary that can come from something like that is really um, unparalleled. Um, what do you think about that, by the way? So like, you know, with archaeology, we have the perspective of history and commentary on culture from objects and artifacts versus um, with art history, we're approaching history from the perspective of the remaining pieces of art from a generation or the themes that we see in um, the visual representation of a culture. What have you found in your study? I, I guess, do you have any sort of comparison between the two? You mean between art history and archaeology? Yes. You know, art history, arguably art history is a much broader subject on archaeology mm. because we are dealing with so much more than just paintings but we're also dealing with sculpture and architecture to some extent and we're dealing with um, other types of um, cultural heritage and artifacts. I think art history allows us to see a much more individualistic perspective mm. on the commentary of the date of when it was made. Mm. You know, obviously the further we go back the, when an artifact was made, the lesser we know just because mm -hmm. of lack of, you know, scriptures and lack of how much artifacts are left from the time. But they do tell us, they show us glimpses of mm. how the political system was, how the economy worked, you know, who was commissioning who. And um, there's also the social commentary. Mm. I mean, who are the people portrayed in them? And one of the most, I think, personal things about art history is that we get to see something from another person's perspective. Mm. And it's so personal. 
Um, and that's why we have to, no matter how much we want to be such historically factual, mm-hmm. there is that subjectivity and human emotion, which is what makes us attractive to art in itself. It's just how we feel mm. and what it brings us. Exactly. And I think, yes, in the sense that archaeology gives us access to an item, an object. But when we look at the the history of art, we're seeing, like you're saying, an individual's uh, personal lens on what was happening in the world, not just what, but the color and the diversity and the emotion. And often it seems like the artists that really prevail and last are the ones who had something different to say, who were going to be ushering in a new age of thought. And that's why we see so many um, different periods in art history. Yeah, I mean, partially it is definitely that, but one thing that is very important to be self-aware of in art history is how classist and elitist it is. Mm. I mean, we are talking, if we're talking about the fine arts specifically, it's you know, it's centuries of pure commission work. Mm. You know, you do art only because you get paid for it. And that's the only mm. art you get to do. It wasn't, you know, really until arguably the end of the 19th century when artists were, they really had the choice. You know, this is what I'm, I want to do. And this mm. is what I'm going to show to the world. But unfortunately, we've, We've as historians, as an art historians, and just academia as a field, we've failed in the way that there's this larger minority that we've mm. just ignored. Of course, you know, I think there are reasons why painters like Van Gogh or Da Vinci are so prominent, but it's also because society chose them mm. to be so in the spotlight. Of course. So hmm. there is that something that to, that we need to be aware of in, hmm. in general, in academia field, not only in art history. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there an artist that comes to mind um, for, so before the time frame when you were saying there was more um, free thought and free expression allowed for artists when it wasn't just about commission work. Can you think of an artist um, before that time who did just do what they wanted to do or who maybe worked within commission to still say something? I think I think every artist tried to put themselves somewhere or another into the their art. I feel like a good a good example of this would be Botticelli who painted The Birth of Venus. Mm. You know, he had a very specific style. Undeniably, you look at a Botticelli painting and you immediately know that it's him. Can you describe his style? I think it was light and it flowed. Mm. I think Botticelli wanted to illustrate what what we now understand as humanism and combine that with mythological depictions into illustrations that would be difficult to not understand Mm. you know Botticelli was known to work for the Medici family which at the time was 
the ruling family in Italy. And I think Botticelli, having been trained under professional masters, like he knew that, you know, I have to do what they tell me, but I also need to somehow say what I want to say. And nowadays, when you look back at the painting Birth of Venus, you know, during the Second World War, like that painting was considered to be such a symbolism for freedom and independence. Mm. Um, Botticelli painted that and he never thought that would happen. But here we are. Wow. And as women, we also look back at the painting. It is so it is freedom mm. because there's this magnificence in um, a kind of like a. Mm, just a presence about it. Yeah. It's, it's triumphant. It is. Especially if you know the history behind how Venus was born. Mm. Tell us a, about Venus's birth. I mean, I don't know specifically the whole story, but she was born from the foam wave, mm. I believe so. And then she came out of a seashell. Mm. And that's what the painting portrays. And I think... As a feminist symbol, arguably, that represents how she just came to be, mm. like, as she came to be. Not from the source yeah. of masculinity, exactly. but that she just was and was in her own right. Yeah. And that is beautiful. What's funny is that Venus or Aphrodite, like, she, she being the goddess of love, but in literature, she is a a tour de force. Mm. She's fierce and at times perhaps quite revengeful. Mm. Um, She almost like did what she wanted and nobody could tell her what to do. And, you know, I think that is why paintings like that become feminist symbols Mm. is because we as a society, you know, even though Botticelli didn't mean to, paint that as a feminist symbol or as a freedom or independence it came to be because we choose it to be Mm. that's beautiful and that shows that as a society we do have a choice Mm. to look at art and say you know this is what we want to do with it this Mm. is what we want to represent now of course who we are to say what is art and what isn't Mm. and that is a whole other conversation i was about to say i think we could talk about this for a very very long (laughs) time like that's that's that could be a whole podcast absolutely um but at the end i think as art historians right now our duty is to not only talk about art that's been talked about so many times which doesn't make it any lesser than it's still just as important, but we must also be inclusive mm. and tell stories and illustrate them and talk about the stories of people who unfortunately didn't have a voice. Mm. A lot of them being women or a minority or mm. queer people. Mm. And that is important. Um, in the academia field, um, it's rigorous. It's small and we have, we learn to fight it through Mm. writing. That's the only way. Hmm. Uh. So tell me more about, um, I'm really loving what you're saying about 
magnifying the voices of minorities, women, and queer people, um, the under, those who have not been given a platform. So in your studies thus far, what artists from those places have you really been drawn to? And um, maybe have you either written about or f- look forward to writing about in the future? Yeah, so one of the things that I specialize in art history is feminist and queer theory. Mm. I'm personally very passionate about it. And so I think um, it almost it's natural to me mm. to... If I'm writing an academic paper, I want to talk about um, a woman or a queer person, and so I one of the one of my favorite movements is the surrealist movement. Mm, surrealism, surrealism, <laughs> <laughs> and I I would love to write either my thesis or just generally uh, an academic paper on female surrealists Mm. because you know the surrealist movement they they all immigrated from europe to america or a lot of them did and some of them were women but they just weren't talked about as much Mm. and here i am thinking about dorothea tanning or i'm talking about um uh lenora carrington or finney and they're also they they did so much for not only feminism, whether they were trying to do so or not, which I'm pretty sure they were, but they did so much not only for women's history, but women's art history. Mm. And I'm sure they also influenced what a lot of people, you know, they learn in later art movements, like Mm. abstract expressionism or um, uh, neopop or whatever. And so those are a couple of artists who who I'm really passionate about. But I've also written about, uh, I wrote a research paper on a modernist painter. Her name is Emily Charmy. Um, she was an avant-garde painter who, um, she resided right in Paris. And she, you know, when I was researching about it I could barely find anything wow. and you know you would think right like a painter from the 20th century not that long ago you know for mm, us there would be more information yeah. mm. but she was in the same galleries as all the same avant-garde painters that you think like Gauguin or uh, Picasso like she was there but she's never written about which is so crazy. Like you only find it in like small snippets. Like, oh, she was in this gallery and this other, you know, because um, they had to write about it. But her story is never told. And so when I when I wrote that research paper, um, you have to be mindful of that. Hmm. And I think it's important to reiterate is that our history doesn't seek the the facts because you can't put art into a box hmm. that's your first mistake is to essentialize what is art and we need to we need to think about the the time the place um and just realistically i mean emily charmy she was um uh, there was a man who wrote which well, one of the only 
pieces that I could find about her, a, a journalistic piece. Mm. And she was known to sleep with both men and women. And she and her husband were in an open relationship. Hello, queer people in the 20th century <laughs> yes. and a woman absolutely existed. Absolutely. And I think as art historians, we do neglect that. Mm. We do. And so that is one way that I want to approach and be mindful. You know, when I, she painted a lot of nude figures and who am I say to that is not uh, an exploration of female sexuality because mm-hmm. it ap- absolutely sounds like it. Yeah. You know, if we're thinking about like Freudian theory mm. or something similar. Mm. And I think to me, that's what's important mm. in my own academic research. Mm. Oh, very cool. And that sounds like such a, um, a beautiful and maybe challenging, but a beautiful call to have, uh, to have more of this sense of mystery and to tell an untold story rather than writing about what has already been written about. I think that that's, um, just really wonderful and unique, um, and very needed for sure. Yeah. Um, so bringing the conversation towards poetry, you, um, shared a poem with me recently over text yes um but it is a poem by a spanish author what is her name well she's not spanish but she lived in spain oh she lived in spain where Mm -hmm. was she from i can't remember i know she's from a latin american country okay forgive me (laughs) i wanted to see if you would be willing to read the poem for us first in spanish and then in english i would love to awesome so this author's name, her name is Gabriela Mistral. Um, pretty prominent um, poet writer, I would say. Um, I think if you start going into feminist or any women, you know, poetry or women's authors, you'll definitely have heard of Gabriela Mistral. But she wrote this beautiful poem, which translates to I'm not alone. And in Spanish, that would be Yo no tengo soledad. So here's the poem in Spanish. Yo no tengo soledad. Es la noche de desamparo de las sierras hasta el mar. Pero yo la que te merece, yo no tengo soledad. Es el cielo de desamparo si la luna cae al mar. Pero yo la que te estrecha, yo no tengo soledad. Es el mundo de desamparo y la carne triste va. Pero yo la que te oprime, yo no tengo soledad. And here's a translation in English called, I am not alone. The night, it is deserted from the mountains to the sea, but I, the one who rocks you, I'm not alone. The sky, it is deserted, for the moon falls to the sea, but I, the one who holds you, I'm not alone. The world, it is deserted, all flesh is sad, you see, but I, the one who hugs you, I am not alone. Yeah. So beautiful. Hmm. We went on afterwards to have a really beautiful conversation um, about poetry and surrealism. So Alexandra and I first, for our listeners, first um, became friends, I think, because, well, one, for a mutual love of coffee, and then 
for a mutual love of astrology. And then I think what really cemented our friendship was a mutual love of walking in graveyards at odd <laughs> times of the day and night. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, I remember the first, uh, well, we've had many memorable conversations, but one of the first conversations that truly shook me to my core and stuck with me was a conversation we had about surrealism. Um, this is not for this season, but I am very interested in just conversation about human spirituality. Um, and I was raised in conservative evangelical Christendom. Um, and Alexandra, you were not raised with really any sort of faith system at all, correct? Right. So we've had so many fascinating conversations about the human spiritual experience and the way that that metabolizes differently based on these different upbringings. Um, so this conversation in the graveyard though, was about surrealism, which is a, I suppose a worldview I've never understood, especially because of this strong purpose-driven theistic, uh, upbringing of mine. And I think that when I was listening to your exposition of this poem, it was the first time that I really understood um, the beauty of the viewpoint of surrealism. Do you think you could do your best to kind of recap that conversation for our listeners? And obviously it's not going to be word <laughs> for word, but we can always yeah. talk about it. Yeah, no, I mean, surrealism, the reason why I love surrealism is because how what an unusual art movement it was first of all it didn't even start as a painting movement which i feel like usually when new art movements popped up in the modern era that's how it happened there was a manifesto written and then here's a movement but surrealism was actually started by um by an author mm -hmm. andre breton and it eventually became uh this this movement inspired by Freud's philosophy, which then was inspired by communism. And in Spain, it sought to be a political movement, which has never happened before. Hmm. And so a lot of what surrealism focuses on is existentialism. I mean, it... it naturally um with freud's theory it naturally became very nihilistic and mm -hmm. there was a lot of erotic undertones and surrealism and you know if we're thinking about this poem um from the brief research that i've done it definitely has an existentialist perspective um hardly i would say it's surrealist but there was this need to seek the individuals the individualistic you know uh i'm not really versed in existentialism as much as i would love to but existentialism was a very nihilistic movement that it sought to understand human nature based on our choices and what i really love about mistral's poem is that it talks about how, and, and this was written right after the World War, it, it really seeks to search the individualistic in nature. 
how we we can find ourselves in something that's been here before us, it's here and probably will be after us. And I think one thing you and I really agree on is how nature really connects us. Mm. And we feel this calm and peace when we're in it. And when we're thinking about such a turbulent time when existentialism and surrealism and the world wars were coming around, everything feels like the ground's shaking. Mm. But nature, you know, the sun comes up, the moon goes up, everything mm. kind of flows. Mm. You know, everything everything destroyed is um, that we feel personally attached to is man-made. Yes. And we were having, I remember you, you were saying something about how um, the, in the wake of this war, there's, there's a sense of, uh, I suppose, cynicism in the human condition and in the horrors that um, just the pitfalls of humanity can create. And there's a beauty in the fact that in the movements and seasons and cycles of the earth, there is inevitable destruction, but that leads to the next creation. And it's a, a beautiful death and rebirth cycle that is not it's from some evil greed or intent of man or even like the silliness and inability to connect that often can create war. Um, not to minimize the reasons that war happens either, but, um, that in the wake of seeing what devastation can be wrought by, um, humankind, there is a stabilizing beauty in holding fast to the ebbs and flows, destructions and creations of nature. There's a um, a peaceful motherly space in the destruction. And I think something that you said that really stuck with me was she is destroyer and therefore she is creator. Mm. Speaking of mother earth um, and how as we experience so many large, sometimes unnameable forces that move either horrors or wonders upon our lives. There's a beauty in just leaning back into it all and finding the connection um, in the human experience that being a part of that cycle brings us, even in a time where there was so much disconnection. Um, and I think that that to me just really transformed the way that I was uh, that I saw um, this worldview of existentialism. I think it's easy to forget, you know, I, when when Mistral wrote that poem, there was so much human grief mm. that, as you said, you do become cynical mm. and you become attached to the most unnatural things. Mm. And... And that's sort of funny when it comes to the individualistic. You're almost finding yourself in the most um, aloof and weirdest things mm. in life. But Well, and almost that if there is no safety, I think that 
as, as an American who has never experienced war and who's always known relative luxury compared to the majority of the rest of the planet and the rest of the humankind in general. Um, I don't, I can hold to very lofty human ideals because I haven't seen everything blown apart before my eyes. And I am not in any way either degrading the culture, the, the cultural perspective that I come from either, but I think it just makes so much sense to be coming from this place where you don't have the luxury of holding on to these human ideals anymore. And so the safety you find is not in creating meaning, but simply moving back into the rhythm of it all mm. and recognizing that uh, almost finding peace in the meaninglessness. And once again, of course, I am a theist and this is not my worldview, but I think that your expression, connection, and then exposition of this poem really deepened my my context for this worldview and it, it just is so beautiful to me yeah and i think you know we were talking about that line she's destroyer therefore creator mm. and that's something that's so easy to forget when you're so deep into the void in the darkness you're so used to kind of everything crumbling down from no matter how small you think it is, you know, as humans, we experience, you know, constantly some sort of grief or mm. sadness. It's natural. Mm. And when you remind yourself that you are a destroyer, but you're also a creator, mm. you know, this is a cycle. And we're going back to this Mother Earth idea. Mm. You know, Mother Earth has been doing this for so long. She destroys and she creates. Mm. And as humans, we shall do so, too. Yes. There's a, um, in my experience, I've seen um, a lack of comfort with the destructive or shadow part of self that has caused, that really caused almost a mental breakdown for me a couple, well, last year. Um, and I think that it was almost this idea that once you faced the parts of yourself that maybe were more destructive or looking the, the darker parts of yourself in the eye would then create nothing but destruction. Um, and so that, that idea resounds with me so deeply when I start to realize that, um, also as a Scorpio rising and sun, I have really begun to deeply love this, um, this idea of a seasonal death and rebirth. And I think this is such a universal and is shown across so many different, um, cultural mythologies, spiritual mythologies. It's even the, you know, in, in my cultural language, the, the death and then rebirth or resurrection of the Christ is something that my entire culture holds on to as the, the one, um, life giving idea. And I, I think that it's so beautiful what a, what a human constant this is of allowing all of the destruction to be experienced and then recognizing that there, there is never the end. The end is never the destruction. Mm -hmm. Um, and that newness always follows this yeah. like a wildfire. Mm. Mm. Like some wildfires are natural in human nature mm. and in nature itself. Mm. Yeah. 
Can we talk a little bit about multiculturalism and belonging? I think that you have such a fascinating background. You are trilingual, is that right? Yes. Oh, so cool. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, you're trilingual. You come from, I would say you're also tricultural, right? You've you spent your summers in Russia. You grew up in Monterey, Mexico, and then you spent a lot of time in the U.S. as well. Yeah. Um, and you've traveled all over. So can you tell me a little bit about what that's been like for you? Maybe expound a little bit more on what your sense of home is like and how that how that all feels in your world yeah i it's it's a very unusual and unique experience i mean i feel like every time i explain it to someone i i almost have to step back myself and and kind of realize like wow so much is happening in my life and i'm still so young (laughs) but and you're how old and i'm 20 you're 20 I, I've never thought about the sense of home until very recently. I think because when I was younger, I think I've, I've, well, first of all, I didn't, of course, understand, you know, what, what does it mean to stay in one place and kind of, this is where I grew up. This is my culture. Cause for me, it's never been that. Of course, I grew up in a Russian household, but outside of that, in my world, uh, was completely different. It's like I had to adapt to two worlds at the same time. Mm. And, um, you know, my, my grandfather, when I would go back to Russia, you know, he, he always says the story of how I didn't start talking until very late as a baby because, or as a child, because I was trying to learn three languages at the same time. Wow. Which, I mean, now I'm very thankful for, of course, but, you know, when, when as a kid, you're so confused. Wow. Yeah, that must have been. Did you experience at all where you would mix the languages? Oh, yeah, all the time. Oh, that's so interesting. Really? Yeah. Like some people don't notice it. And I would I would like slip a word in Russian or in Spanish while talking to someone in English. They Mm -hmm. totally ignore it or they don't realize it. But I do. It's like um, everything like stops in my brain. I'm like, oh, wait wrong language (laughs) so what is your what is your natural language like when you what what language do you think in see so many people have asked me that and i don't have i don't have a definite answer to that but usually it's the last language that i've spoken in okay um so you know as you and i are speaking i am thinking in english because i'm about to speak to you in english and like form my thoughts Hmm. but you know if you ask me like what my mother language is usually I would say Russian but also Russian is a language that I didn't have a formal education in like Mm -hmm. all the grammar and reading was taught by my parents and I think that might have almost make it more of your 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 native language in that sense because it was colloquial you know it wasn't taught to you it was your heritage being passed on to you yeah which is pretty beautiful that your parents you know did that yeah, no, I I am very grateful, and you know I have um, just acquaintances like of my family who are also like have a very similar experience to mine, and their parents that send them to like a sort of online like Russian school. My parents didn't like they they really were set on teaching me everything at home, and I I am lucky in that I'm not completely disconnected 
to my Russian heritage. In fact, I would say, you know, I I used to go or I still go every year, mm-hmm. um, either summer, winter or both. And you were there this summer, right? Yes. And I, I mean, I'm with my grandparents mm-hmm. and I'm with the friends who I've known them for over a decade mm-hmm. and I still see them and, you know, I'm still part of that. Mm-hmm. But... I am also aware that I'm not because one thing that I have struggled with is I'm never able to find a place where I completely identify with. Hmm. And, you know, I look back at my childhood in Mexico and I realize now how people really defined my, my cultural heritage as almost a personality trait which Mm. i think a lot of immigrant children can relate to you know they when you start stereotyping somebody as you know people say i'm russian but russian isn't a personality type for me you know it's who i am it's it's my ethnicity it's my language it's my culture um but when i was a kid i didn't understand that Mm. and i look back now at how people talked to me and they treated me like i was a foreigner Mm. And so even the place where I grew up in, I still was somewhat unwelcomed. Um, And I'm sure, you know, all those kids that did say that, they didn't mean it that way. But, you know, it's an outsider. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's another person who speaks another language and they look different. Um, And I think that's allowed me to adapt easier to places. And one thing I you know you and I've talked about a lot is how I'm so disconnected to places Mm. like I don't care that I'm here or I'm leaving this place I've made such good friendships and I I've built so so much in so little time it feels Mm. like but I have no regrets of leaving if I do which I probably will yeah (laughs) um Mm. yeah it's 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 sort of a mental struggle Mm. trying to constantly identify but I think that's something that I I need to realize that wherever I go I'm never gonna fit in because this is the way I grew up in because here I'm a foreigner I'm a foreigner in other places and I'm a foreigner in Russia because I didn't grow up there do you see yourself at some point in your life choosing a space and saying this is home Here I put my flag in the ground and it will be home for me and I will live here for the rest of my life. Yes. Hmm. And do you feel like even with your background and your many cultures of belonging and lack of belonging, that that statement and choosing of being there will be enough to become that sense of home for you? Um... I think, as cliche as this sounds, you know, home is where I, I choose it to be, where I am comfortable and where I love it, where I love to be myself. And I think, you know, wherever I go, and not just about me, but anyone, wherever you go, you are judged. You know, that's just how life works, unfortunately. Mm. I think... Um, and that's something that I need to work in, work on. And that's to find a home within myself too. Mm. And my own worth and realize what I can do in this life. 
Mm. Um, and I don't see necessarily all the pessimistic and me not feeling attached to places. I think there is some positive sides to it. I feel like my life is traveling, which mm. is what I want to do. I want to travel all the time mm. and I'm okay with it. And I think now that I've left Mexico behind, I still have friends there and I talk to them and I love them very much, their family. Mm. And it doesn't feel like I'm losing them. And that's why I feel confident leaving. Mm. I was going to ask you that next, which is that I feel like there's almost a sense of... Um, a sense of cosmicness around relationships that that creates for you just from knowing you as a person you're very loyal and when you choose somebody you are extremely present with them whether you were with them or not and I think like I've I've heard you talk about the same people that maybe you haven't seen in years um with so much fondness which with so much closeness and um I know that whenever you move, we will still continue to be friends. That's something that I don't have a doubt in my mind about. And so, yeah, what do you think about that? Do you feel that that's true about you? Yeah, I think I am. I'm a very guarded person. Like I don't let myself into other people's lives very easily. In fact, it, usually it's the other way around. People get into my life and then <laughs> from there I just see how, how it goes. Okay, how did that go with us? It was pretty, I think for us, it just matched very quickly. Mm -hmm. We trusted each other very easily. Mm -hmm. And we met in a neutral space. It was, it was both of our we spaces. Did. Yeah. But it was also like, it was never rushed. Mm. It just kind of happened slowly. Mm -hmm. um, which I like that. I feel like, you know, it doesn't mean that having like two people put together in one room, there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like we're almost like danced. Mm -hmm. we're, we're yeah like, okay. I think we saw each other so many times before we actually yeah. talked we're like we I know you I've seen you mm -hmm. <laughs> um but yeah I think I I've learned to have a small group of friends but those group of friends they become everything to me truly like as much as maybe I don't tell them or remind them as often like I'm, I trust you with so much and I'm loyal and that's why knowing that I'm probably going to leave and that's not my motivation, obviously, but it does make me want to make deeper relationships mm. because I want to teach you as much as I know and I want to learn as much as I want from you. Like, I want you to know that this, you know, space is, of course, it's hard when you leave, mm -hmm. but we're always there. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's such a beautiful thing because that's always the way I've perceived relationships, which is just the genuine connection of souls and the support of that soul wherever they may go. So this idea of connection and I mean, we, I, I see you if, if possible, multiple times a week. Um, but I think that and so whenever I get to live close to friends, of course, I want to be constantly breaking bread with them. I'm very <laughs> extroverted, as you know. But something that is really important to me to know is that there is this sense of long-term connection in friendship. And not all friendships are like that, of course. Um, I know some people where I'm like, this is more of a seasonal friendship where we are here together and that's wonderful and we will probably part ways and not really talk again. But um, 
to me, the people that really count over the course of a lifetime are the people when um, you do go off to pursue whatever dreams you have, which take you in a different uh, direction. There isn't a mutual forgetting. There is instead a mutual support, even if just in spirit. And I, I feel that with my siblings, um, the bond that I have with my siblings is a sense of support over space and time, even when there isn't conversation, even when there isn't in-person uh, connection. Um, and I think with my best friendships, I feel that as well. And it's, it is, it's a, a force of support as you as an individual are taking on new challenges and navigating into new arenas. Yeah. No, and same here. I mean, plenty of times, like I leave Russia and I leave friends there that I've known for years, but I go mm. back and, you know, it is like yesterday. And that's how, you know, I, that's why, you know, I don't really keep like people around who it's only like, if it's only an acquaintance, then of course, I mean, we talk there and, but we don't really know each other. Mm. But if I know someone and I really, I choose to have you in my life is because I trust you in this life mm. and forever, you know, like we're loyal to that. Um, and, you know, regardless of what happens, you can control the future. Mm. But to me, that's what it is. It's like having that deep relationship because it makes you feel secure mm. and grounded, you know? Absolutely. And that, that like unconditional support of the other person's soul being free, I think is a big deal of just knowing that there are people in, in your world, in the world, who care about you and want the best for you, no matter where you are going. Yeah. I think that, I think in terms of that, I absolutely agree with you. Like I, as an independent person that I am, like I want you to do what you want for yourself, mm. truly. And whatever you choose, I'll be here. Mm. And that's what I would want for you to do to me. Yes. So, uh, mm. and I think that your your background really has helped create that sense of non attachment that you have with the people uh, that around you, proving as well that non attachment isn't about a lack of care or a lack of connection. But that is a conversation for another day. Indeed. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for being on Every Day at My House. It's been so beautiful to talk with you. Thank you. It was wonderful. 